going to be in the book of Acts this morning. I want to go ahead and encourage you. We're actually going to, we're going to read a lot of verses in the book of Acts. Um, and so I would encourage you to go ahead and get your Bible open. It is the word that works. Like my opinion, I, I, I like my opinion. I think it's pretty important. But it is not the word of God. And so I want you to see in the word what his word says and it, let it shape your view, shape your, uh, your perspective, and even shape your your, the way you think, the way you, the things you believe, the ways you desire, uh, and then by that, the things you do. And so I want to encourage you, open to the book of Acts. We'll start in chapter 1. Uh, but because this is a little different, I'm going to go ahead and pray now, um, and then we'll, we'll dive in um, into, this, into this study. So let's pray. Father, we long to know you. Thank you for your word that we can. We long to be a people who live in obedience to you. Thank you for your word so that we can. Father, we long to to be able to just be in awe of what you are doing in and through us. And so thank you for your word so that we can understand it, so that we can discern it, and so that we can be in awe. Would you meet us now? These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm just going to give you the point right off the top. Just start right off with it. So here we go. Jesus' mission for the church has never been to build a reservoir to contain the gospel, but for us to be a conduit through which the gospel flows. Let me say it again. Jesus' mission for the church has never been to build a reservoir to contain the gospel, but for us to be a conduit through which the gospel flows. And if you were in here when we opened at the service this morning, when we opened uh, in t- and called to worship, we started with the reflection of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. In case you weren't in here and able to do that, I've got the verses here for you. We're going to read them real quickly and, and, and just start our study in the book of Acts with a reading in the book of Matthew. Matthew 18, 28 through, 18, 28, 18 through 20 says this, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Which means, what I'm about to tell you, you're expected to obey. Right? Like if he said, run off and, and build con- uh, uh, monasteries and... and, and um, Gosh, what, where did the nuns go? Con- convents, thank you. Golly, where am I at this morning? If that's what he said, then that would be what we do. Like, hide off, huddle away, just hide. Make sure nobody knows what's going on with you. Then that's what we would do. But that's not what he said. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe... To observe, excuse me, all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always. Not sometimes, not when you feel me, not when you can sense my presence, not when there's a picture of me sitting in front of you, not when you're singing a song that makes you feel emotionally fluffy inside. I am with you always to the end of the age. So, in giving this command, Jesus sets in motion a work. A mission, his 
mission that would continue after his ascension and until his return. The church was not to return to hiding as they had done after his crucifixion. Now, on the night of his crucifixion, the disciples went into hiding. They were afraid. They were scared. Three days later, they were still scared behind closed doors. It was women who found the tomb empty who came to them and told them, He is alive. They were scared and they were in hiding. These Christ followers were not to return to the lives that they had left behind when they had laid down fishing nets and stood up and left their tax booths. Jesus had called them to something bigger, something of greater value, something with an eternal purpose. The mission he was giving to them wouldn't end with him ascending into heaven, nor would it end with them, but was to be carried on by those who would follow even after these apostles. Let me just show it to you again. Make disciples, teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. That's everything from his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount early on in his ministry to this very command at the end of his ministry. Go make disciples. This has been being handed down through the church for generations. Last week when we looked at Paul's uh, uh, second letter to Timothy, it was a handing off of his ministry to Timothy. Paul was handing the baton for the next generation of leaders to, to take up the mission. Paul's instruction to Timothy was much like Jesus' great commission. I mentioned it in passing to us as a way to apply it to us, to see his command to Timothy to preach the word in season and out of season, to, to be applied to us. But he says this, he writes this, this sets the tone for the whole letter 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So here's Paul, having been called by Christ into the mission, having been given responsibility to go and make disciples by Jesus on the road to Damascus, being told this is what you're going to do. Turning to Timothy and saying, hey, Timothy, I'm, I'm, I'm about to die. My life is at its end. You go preach the word. But hey, by the way, don't forget what you've seen and heard and watched in me. You turn around and you give it to faithful men who can teach it also. Timothy was given the responsibility as much as Paul was given the responsibility, as much as, as, much as the apostles had been given the responsibility to carry on this mission and pass on this mission. See, the, the mission that Jesus gave to his followers would not end with him. It would not end with them. Each generation is given the responsibility to raise up the next generation, to pass on the baton so that they can run the race of Jesus' mission. Fast forward all the way to April 1865. When in a monthly publication called The Sword and the Trowel, Charles Spurgeon writes, he's this great Baptist preacher, he writes these words. The Christian church was designed from the first to be aggressive. It was not intended to remain stationary at any period, but to advance onward until its boundaries became commensurate with, the, with those of the world. It was to spread from Jer Jerusalem to all Judea, from Jer Judea to Samaria, and from Samaria unto the uttermost part of the earth. It was not intended to radiate from one central point only, 
but to form numerous centers from which its influence might spread to its surrounding or to the surrounding parts. Fast forward just a little further. Here we sit, August 2019, 2020, just on the horizon, right? I mean, there's a lot of us already counting down to Christmas and thinking about New Year's. And this mission is still going on. And there's nothing that can stop it. But there are lots of things that can get in our way from being able to enjoy being a part of it. The gospel is still moving. It's still flowing from person to person, generation to generation. Jesus' great work, the mission he gave us, that he gave his apostles on that day so long ago, it's your mission. It's my mission. And you can make excuses and you can say, no, 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 here's why I think it's not. It belongs to the professionals. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' mission for the church has never been to build a reservoir to contain the gospel, but for us, each of us, to be conduits through which the gospel flows. Your life is more than trying to build a kingdom here. A kingdom that is going to fail. You have eternal work. You have eternal purpose. You have God's power, and you have God's authority. Go. Make disciples. Clearly we see that, right? right? We, 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 we've seen it in, in Matthew's gospel. We, we, we've seen the great commission expressed. But it's in, the book of Ma- it's in the book of Acts that we actually get to watch it begin to unfold. We get to watch the making, the maturing, and the mobilizing of, of gospel witnesses all the way through the book of Acts. And so in a little different fashion than we typically do here, we're actually going to study the book of Acts in about 30 minutes, maybe. It's only 28 chapters we should be able to get through. Just kidding. We won't get through. No, we'll do what we need to do. In Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, that's where we're going to start. That's where we're going to land. That's where we're going to begin and, and launch Jesus commissions gospel witnesses. We've already read this in Matthew. It's a, it's a slightly different version. It's likely a different point where he's saying essentially the same thing in a different way. But it's where we need to start if we're really going to understand the, the, the function and flow of the book of Acts. So that's where we're going to start. So, so, he, so, so this is what happens. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons, but that times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The apostles, they come to Jesus. They're looking and they're thinking, oh, it's time to settle down. Jesus is alive. He's been teaching us. He's been establishing stuff for us. We're meeting at this place and we come to him and this is going to be the time. And they come up to him and they're so excited. I can just imagine they are so excited. They have been following this man through thick and thin. 
this man that they have learned that they can worship and there's a right to worship him. And they, I, I can only imagine this anticipation. Is now the time? And this isn't a question out of the blue. This is not some, they didn't just come up with this. Jesus, if you remember Luke's first volume, Jesus had been teaching about the establishment of his kingdom. This was a, a question. They'd been hearing him teach and talk about the kingdom. They, they were anticipating the establishment of the kingdom. They're ready to settle down. They're, they're ready to live at ease. Man, we've been at this for three and a half years now. It's now the time that you're going to go into to Jerusalem and kick those scoundrels out of the temple and, and we take it for ourselves? Is now the time that you're going to send Rome packing and we're going to rule ourselves again as, in the way it was intended? For them, they're, they're looking to settle down. Jesus, he's like, ah, you don't understand. We're just getting started. In fact, we, we need to recognize, there, I don't think it's harsh. I don't think it's heavily confrontational, but Jesus certainly gives them a gentle rebuke here. You don't need to worry about times and dates. You don't need to be concerned about what the Lord is doing in these things. You need to be concerned about being his witness. You're going to get power from the Holy Spirit. And you have a purpose. That power is not so that you can go build your own kingdom. It's so you can go be a witness to my kingdom. And before we move on, we need to draw just a little bit of a parallel here, right? We just need to see ourselves kind of in this reality. And I don't mean by confronting people who are out there drawing timelines and setting dates, right? We know there's wackadoos out there doing that kind of thing. And if, in case you're wondering, for, for those of you that care about words, wackadoo really is a word. I looked it up because my spell check didn't recognize it. Wackadoo really is a word. If I've ever taught you anything, that's the thing you'll remember, I'm sure. <laughs> Sorry. It's going to take us 31 minutes to get through this now. There's certainly people out there doing that. We know better, right? We've studied closely enough. We're watching. We're reading and studying the Word. We know better than to be setting dates. We know better than to be drawing timelines and telling people that the Lord's going to come back in a certain date and time. I don't think that's what we need to address. I think what we need to address is that in the same way that the apostles are looking to end the trouble and difficulty that they had faced for three and a half years, that is often our concern. I, 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 don't, I don't dispute the reality of the heaviness of the difficulty of this life. Don't, don't hear me say that. That's why I will walk so closely with you when you go through it. It's difficult. But they're looking for a life of ease and of comfort to sit down and put their feet up because they want the work to be finished. And his answer to them is no. This is not that time. And the answer to us is no. This is not that time. You see, we're not living in heaven. We are living on earth. And while it's not fun to think about, while it's not easy to think about, 
So long as we're here, so long as we are living in this sin sick world, even though we are righteous in God's sight, we will face the difficulties that come under the curse of God's sin, but not to condemn us, not to destroy us, not to put us aside, but to grow us and hone us and shape us and polish out the mirror, the, the mirror image of Jesus' Son in us. You see, more than it was no about this being the time that his kingdom would be fully established, more than it being known now, it's not their worry, and it's not our worry. Sometimes we're so wrapped up about trying to figure out what God is doing. What is God's purpose in this? Where is God when all of these things are happening? How in the world could God allow this stuff to happen? Doesn't he know what's happening here? Isn't now the time you're supposed to establish your kingdom? Look at what's happening around us. It's not for you and for me to worry about the times and the seasons and the dates that the Father has set. Brothers and sisters, it's not even ours to to be concerned It's ours to trust that he is sovereign and with you always until the end of the age as you fulfill the very thing he called you to fulfill and be his witness. The the intent that he has for his people is that they are be to tell, they are to be about telling his story. They are be, to be about n- not going around and embellishing uh, on their own and making themselves the hero of the events of what went down, but always, ever, uh, every day, day in, day out, no matter what comes, pointing to Jesus in the face of trouble, which was going to come. Many of them would die because of the things that they were going to be preached. Many of them would be arrested. Many of them would have lies told about them. Many of them would would face very difficult social circumstances. Many of them would be unfriended off of Facebook and be told that you can't be in my family anymore. I mean, that's really the extent of our suffering, right? Just somebody might not like me anymore. They would face that. Whether whether they were there in trouble or whether they were at ease, their lives would be to be lived as witnesses in the power of the Holy Spirit, pointing always to Jesus. And this is as true for us as it was true for them. See, the mission was to start in Jerusalem, but it wasn't to end there. It would extend into the regions directly around Jerusalem. That's what Jesus says. It's going to go into, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You realize we're in the ends of the earth. Right? And, and the beautiful thing about this is that Acts is, is actually built, that the structure of Acts is actually built around these three things. Chapters 1 through 7 tell us of how the gospel goes to Jerusalem. Tells of the commissioning of Jesus' gospel witnesses. Tells us how it starts and then it shows us the the preaching at Pentecost that that begins the process. Chapters 8 through 12 
tell us of the gospel going into Judea and Samaria. Chapters 13 through 18 tell us of the gospel going to the rest of the world. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends. It's, it's Pentecost day. It's 50 days after Jesus' crucifixion, 10 days after his ascension. And the Holy Spirit empowers 120 people to begin to prophesy and speak of the good and powerful works that God has done. And when he came in and when he anointed and when he fell on them, when the Holy Spirit came to take up residence in his believers, in the followers of Jesus, it came with a sound of a rushing wind. It was so loud that it drew a crowd. People wanted to know what was going on and it drew a crowd. We know that crowd was at least 3,000 people big because of the number that believed, but it had to have been much larger than that. And these people, they're beginning to, to, to say these good things about God and to talk about all the good things that God had done, speaking the gospel, if you will. And people that are seeing it, they're from all over the region. They were there because of the holiday, because of Pentecost. They were, from, they were Jews that were living as far away from, from Jerusalem, as far away as Cyprus, which is an island up in, uh, in, in the Mediterranean, as far away as uh, Crete, in, or not Crete, Cyrene in North Africa. They were, they were living as far away as, as um, well, the places that they knew. In their minds, the end of the world, the, 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 the ends of the earth. These are the people... That Jesus was talking about. And some of them are listening and they're like, wait a minute. They're speaking our language. Like these are Galileans. Why do they, how could they possibly know my language? So they begin to make excuses. Oh, they're just drunk. Now, you and I know drinking that much alcohol makes our speech incoherent. It makes it incomprehensible. It doesn't enable us to speak languages we've never spoken that is not what happens, but they had to come up with something. So their excuse was drunk, that they were drunk. Peter steps out, says, no, they're not drunk. He becomes a spokesperson, and he preaches the first gospel message, public proclamation of the gospel, since Jesus had ascended into heaven, 3,000 people believe. The church in Jerusalem went from 120 to 3,120 in a day. In one preaching of the gospel. And what unfolds, sorry, let me, let me just shape this for you. We're not going to study this passage. I would encourage you to go back and, and, and look at it closely. But in Acts chapter 2, the preaching of the gospel is done. And these new believers, these new Christians are united in with those who are existing. And they, they, they unite around the teaching of the apostles and prayer. They get so concerned for one another, they actually begin to take care of one another and serve one another's needs. And what unfolds over the next few chapters really sets out a pattern for what would happen in the rest of the book of the in the rest of the book of Acts. The gospel's preached, people are saved, and due to those results and people getting saved, those believers, the ones preaching and the ones believing, begin to face opposition. They begin to face persecution. But instead of cower or quit, Step back. Oh, oh, no, this is difficult. So this must, must, this, this must not be God's will for me because this is hard. They don't do that in the least. They actually pray for even greater levels of boldness. One example of this is when Peter and John, they'd healed a man. He was over 40 years old. They'd healed him. He couldn't walk. They, 
They made him able to walk by the power of the Holy Spirit. They worked this miracle. This man who couldn't walk is made able to walk. And they preach. They take opportunity to preach the gospel because, hey, we've got a captive audience. So what do they do? They point to Jesus Christ as the one, the one who you crucified, the one who you killed is the Lord and Christ. And the religious leaders of the day, the Jewish leaders come to them and tell them, quit preaching in his name. And they look at each other and they're like, well, we can't do that. Because all authority given, all authority in heaven and on has given us this command, go be my witnesses, right? Like, what do we do? We'll listen to you or listen to him. We'll listen to him. They're put in jail overnight because it's near evening. There's nothing that the Jewish leaders could do that day. They're put in jail. They're released the next day and told again, don't preach in his name. But their response, I, I just really appreciate They go back to their friends, and in Acts chapter 4, verse 29 through 31, it says this. And now, this is a prayer, Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Hmm. Well, they've told us not to. Can't assume that they think this is going to be easy. Can't assume that they think that there's going to be no consequence. Can't assume that they aren't going to think that the opposition is going to increase or that the persecution is going to come. But they don't pray for God to change that circumstance. They actually pray to be bold in the face of the circumstance. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand and heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Their prayer was answered. I wonder, just, just I mean, I'm just shooting in the dark here, right? Like, I wonder... How many of our prayers aren't being answered affirmatively because we're seeking just to end difficulty instead of being bold in the face of difficulty? I, I don't know that... I, I don't ever want you to hear me say we shouldn't pray for, for relief and, and, and God's presence and His comfort. That's part of the role of the Holy Spirit. Please don't hear me say that. But are our prayers for comfort ever accompany with prayers for boldness? Are our prayers for God to do a mighty work in our presence so that we can feel, sense His presence and we can see His power at work, are they ever accompanied with a prayer that we would profess His name and proclaim His gospel message boldly? I'm guessing I'm not the only one that feels convicted over this. See, instead of asking Jesus to remove their trouble, they asked for boldness in the face of their trouble. And God answered their question. Or he answered their prayer. I'm sorry, he answered their prayer affirmatively. And you know what he did through them? The church continued to grow. In Acts chapter 5, I think it's Acts chapter 4, the the number is 5,000 men. So it goes from 3,120 people to the number of men, 5,000. Now, we don't know how many women and children are there. 
but it's growing really quickly. And there's lots of good things going on. But you know just as well as I do that anytime you get that many people around, you're going to start having some trouble. And that's what they started having. They started having some trouble. There were some inequitable ways in which uh, Grecian widows and Hellenistic widows were being treated. And there were some concerns being raised. We don't know if it was real unfairness or whether it was just perceived unfairness. But it didn't matter. It was a real issue. And the apostles took it up. And they called for the church to present to them seven men. And they said, all right, while we're going to focus on the ministry of word and prayer, these seven men are going to take care of this stuff. They're, they're going to make sure that, this, that, this is, that people are treated fairly. They're going to serve the needs of people. They're going to wait on these tables so that we can focus on the ministry of word and prayer. <clears throat> and this is what happens as a result of their decisions to increase the leaders, to to out from, 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 let me just say this, from, from out of the disciples that had been made, out of the followers of Jesus that had been made since they had begun preaching, they turn and they mature, they, they mature them. They work hard to continue teaching and preaching. So they're made by the gospel. They're matured in the gospel. And then they are going to be mobilized with the gospel. We need more leaders. So the church presents these seven people. They meet the, re- the prerequisites. The apostles affirm them, and this is what happens. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith because these people were so bold, because they would not cower to the pressures from within the church or outside the church, because they were so committed to the preaching of the word, to the proclamation of the gospel, to see disciples made by the gospel, to see disciples matured with the gospel, and to see disciples mobilized with the gospel. These people were able to see God do a massive work among them and beyond them, even priests, it says. The leaders of the other mission, the leaders of the antagonists, right? The people who were standing in the temple, who thought they had it figured out, who from the very beginning of their life had been being prepared to stand in the temple and act as a liaison between God and man, learned that they were no longer a liaison to anyone, but they themselves needed the liaison that is Jesus Christ. They trusted Him, they left their faith, and they trusted the new faith, the faith that is only found in Jesus Christ. The word of God continued to increase. He did a great work. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And we don't get any numbers after this because I think it got to a place where they couldn't keep count. I'm not saying that they couldn't count that high. I just think this is growing. Well, one of these seven leaders that was presented that enabled the apostles to continue their work, his name was Stephen. And, and it was actually pretty interesting because Stephen, he, he's not a guy that is, um, he, he's not just a guy that was waiting on tables. He actually taught. He actually bore witness. We, we recognize it's not just the role of the apostles to bear witness, to be a witness to God and Jesus Christ and the gospel, because we see it immediately happening in the one who was raised up to, to, wait, on, to, to wait tables, to serve the, the, the daily distribution. Luke writes that he was full of grace and power. He performed miracles and he taught with great 
wisdom. You can read about him in Acts, at the end of Acts chapter 6 and into chapter 7. No one could outwit him. He was so filled with wisdom. No one could outwit him. And so instead of trying to outwit him, they began to make false accusations against him. Anybody ever lie about you? Anybody try to build a case about you because out of, out of things that aren't true? They were doing this to him because of the good things that God was doing through him. They were doing this to him because of the ways that God had filled him with wisdom. He ends up facing opposition by a group who begin to, begin to accuse him of blasphemy. He ends up stoned and he becomes the first martyr in the church. If you don't count Jesus. But even as he's facing death, you know what he does? Acts chapter 7. He boldly proclaims the gospel to those who are throwing the stones. After his death, though, things get even more difficult. So we've seen Jesus commission gospel witnesses. We've seen those gospel witnesses preach boldly. Well, now the gospel witnesses are going to scatter their bold witness. You can read, read, read along with me in Acts chapter 8, verse 1 through 5. And Saul approved of his execution. That's Stephen's. Saul, who we know as Paul, who is going to be saved. He's standing there looking at Stephen, nodding his approval. Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Wait where did they go? Judea and Samaria. Where did Jesus say they were to be witnesses? Starting in Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria. Could it be that even in this very difficult season, God is in control and moving his people where he intends them to go? I think yes. <laughs> And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered, listen to this, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip. Another one of the seven that had been selected by the the church and affirmed by the apostles. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. If you're ever wondering, should deacons be teaching or have some responsibility in teaching? I think we have a precedent here in Stephen and Philip. They can teach. They don't have to teach like an elder does, but they can teach. And if they are able to teach, they should teach. The truth is, every one of us, even if we're not deacons or elders, have a responsibility. And we see that in the very first, in, in, in verse 4. It wasn't the apostles. You, you can see back up there in verse 1, that they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the, the, the twelve are still in Jerusalem. But those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So who was that? All these Christians who had been saved through the work in Jerusalem. We know of about 5,120. We don't know of all the women and children. We don't know of those that came after that final, that count in chapter 4. 
We just know that, that, that Jerusalem shrank that day because of the, the work that Paul, the work that the Jews were doing to, to ravage the church. But those who were scattered, they didn't cease preaching. They didn't get quiet. They didn't quit. They didn't cower. They didn't run off into hiding. They brought their teaching on the road. And they continued to teach. You you see what's happening here. You can already sense the Lord never meant His message to sit still. He didn't mean for it to fill your heart and sit there. He didn't mean for you to be a reservoir that would contain the gospel, make you feel light and fluffy until the day he comes back. He meant for the gospel to flow through you. That you would be moved by the gospel so that just like his people in the book of Acts, we wouldn't be uh, 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 cowards. So that that we wouldn't be silent in the face of difficulty. So that we wouldn't be succumbed by by the lies of comfort and ease. But that we would remain... Faithful, bold witnesses taking that witness with us everywhere we go. And it didn't stop. Flip over to Acts chapter 11. Let's see. There's a map. Let me show you this map. Let me, let's go to the map. So here's this map, right? So, so I don't know if you can see this. I, can't, I don't know if you can read these words. I don't even, I, I should have tried this before. Let's see what happens. No, that doesn't work. Okay, well, I'm, I tried. So Samaria is right in the middle. Right in the middle of the map is, is the word Samaria. Right below that is Judea. Right, next big word down is Judea. So we know they spread to those places, right? But they didn't stop. They didn't get to a place and, oh, Jesus said Judea and Samaria, so let's just stop. We're kind of comfortable here. We know people here. We have family here. It's easy to go. No, they continue all the way north. And we're going to see this in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 21. Read, read these verses with me. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Speaking the word to no one except Jews. So here's the idea. Here's what's happening. They're going around. They're, they're, they're going from place to place and people to people. And they're telling the story of Jesus Christ to Jewish folks. So the, the, the message is still mainly being proclaimed to the Jewish people. But in verse 20, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. People who weren't living in Jerusalem, people who come from Cyprus and Cyrene, who probably had heard the message on the day of Pentecost. There were men of Cyprus and Cyrene who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, the Hebrew or the, 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 the Greeks, the, the ones outside the Jewish faith. Let me just say it like that. that spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the, the Lord Jesus. So here we begin to see this multi-ethnic, this broad, diverse group of people being shaped in Antioch. See, by this time in the book of Acts, Paul, who we first heard called Saul, Paul has been saved. He has begun to preach the gospel. He is no longer an antagonist against the church, but an apostle for the church. And and he has begun to do his work. He has begun to preach all around. Peter has gone and and the food laws have been removed and and God has, has saved a a man named Cornelius, and, and this beautiful work is done, and, and, and Gentiles are beginning to hear the message. 
And the message goes all the way to a place called Antioch. Now let's look at the next map. I just want you to see this. So Jerusalem is in the bottom right corner as you look at this. The next one up is Damascus. Paul was on the road to Damascus there when he met Jesus. He ends up radically changed. And he ends up in the church at Antioch, which is all the way up at the top of the Mediterranean Sea. This is a massive amount of land covering multitudes of people. This is no small thing. And here they are. Oh, man, we surely have met the ends of the earth, haven't we? We're here. We've arrived. We're outside of Jerusalem. We can sit down and... And, and take it easy and, and quit pursuing this mission. We've done what Jesus called us to do. And in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, this is what's going on. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. These are the leaders of the church. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul, who we also call Paul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. It isn't finished. The rest of the, rest of the book of Acts is an unfolding of the work of Paul, the shaping of the church. It tells the story of Paul's three missionary journeys. It talks about how the church begins to, to wrestle and grapple with doctrines coming out of Judaism and going off and being explained and expressed in Gentile uh, villages and cities. And how is this all going to work? And they begin to do the work of figuring it all out. Because Jesus is intent on his mission moving. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he makes it move. Now, a man named David Hasselgrave wrote a book. Not, I don't remember when he wrote it. Uh, I've never actually read it. I've seen it. I've made reference to it at different points. Um, but he wrote a book called uh, Planting Churches Cross-Culturally. And what he did, he took Paul's first missionary journey. You can look at it in chapters 13. He, he leaves Antioch. Him and Barnabas go to Cyprus they then go down to, um, uh, well, where are all the headings at that, that will help me? Iconium, Lystra. I, anyway, they, there's this process. They, they, they go through these cities preaching the gospel, doing this work. And, and what he does, as David Hasselgrave does, is he, he looks at these things and he says, hey, look at this for a model for planting churches, for making sure that the mission goes forward. And looking at the different steps in these missionary journeys. He identifies 10 steps in the cycle. i got an image for you, so we're going to put it up there. And I, again, I don't know if you can read all the little bitty words, but there's 10 steps. Missionaries commissioned. Where did we see that happen? Missionaries commissioned in Acts chapter 13. Where else did we see it happen? Acts chapter 1, right? Audience contacted, so they go and engage. They begin to, to communicate the gospel. The hearts are converted. Believers are congregated. Faith is confirmed. Leadership consecrated. Believers commissioned are commended. Relationships continued. And sending churches convened. And the process starts over. And that's what, that's what he notices. That's what he began to seize. And two years ago, I was introduced to this image as I was sitting at a church planter assessment conference. I'm, a, I'm an assessor for Acts 29, and every now and then I get to go up and, and serve the network and serve church planting mission by assessing other church planters, people who want to partner 
with Acts 29. And in the devotional that, the, that Steve Treichler, a really good friend of mine uh, up there at Hope Community Church, he presents this image and he begins to talk about this, this flow. He talks about these 10 these ten steps that, that, that David Hasselgrave, Hasselgrave recognizes and understands. And then he talks about these larger, more general words, prepare, launch, assemble, nurture, transition. There's this idea of planting churches. So we're going to do this work. And then that's categorized in even three bigger terms, evangelize, equip, and empower. And as I'm sitting there listening to him talk about this and show it, unfold in front of the book or, or through the book of Acts, not quite exactly as we've done here this morning, but, but essentially through the missionary journeys of Paul, I'm thinking something a little more close to home. Have any idea, any of you that are familiar with what we do here and our methods and our strategy, you have any idea what I might be thinking about? Yeah, make, mature, and mobilize. The very next screen. The reality is, and I love this when this happens, I'm not the only one that sees these patterns. <laughs> right? We saw it happen over and over through the book of Acts. We see it happen in the ministry of Jesus. He makes disciples. He matures those disciples. He prepares them. He equips them. He empowers them to do his work. And then he says, go and do it. In the book of Acts, the same thing begins to happen. The apostles make disciples. They mature those disciples. And when it's time for them to go, when the, when the pressure comes and they are being scattered, what do they do? They get up and move and they preach and proclaim the gospel. Gathering together, serving one another's needs, making certain that each other is taken care of, not ignoring one another, but at the same time proclaiming the gospel message so that more disciples are made. That cycle continues over and over and over through the book of Acts. And guess what? It's still happening today. We're still responsible to it today. This is Jesus' plan for multiplication. You were made his follower, his disciple, by the gospel. You were being matured as his follower, as his disciple, in the gospel. But that's not the end of it. He has work for you to do. He has places for you to go. People sitting in this room that need you not only to gather with them, but to go to them. To remind them of the gospel truth. Neighbors that you need to go to, to to speak the gospel truth. Co-workers that need to hear the gospel truth. We live in a city much like Jerusalem. Where people every day get up and think that I can just be good enough. And they'll walk into church on a Sunday morning and they'll hear a message that affirms that for them. Please, Please hear me. Please understand me. I am not... I do not want to bash the bride of Christ. He died for her in all of her brokenness. But somewhere along the way, we have lost the sense of power that comes through the work of the Holy Spirit that enables us to do a gospel work. It doesn't just demand it of us. It empowers us for it. It actually sends us. It actually moves us as his witnesses. See, Jesus' mission for the church has never been to build a reservoir that's going to contain the gospel, but for us to be a conduit through which the gospel flows. I want you to walk away this morning 
from this study recognizing your place in this mission. He saved us from our sins and he called us to join him in his work. We're, we're, we're going to be a people. We are a people because of the message of the gospel. We are his people because of the message of the gospel redeeming us. But we are his sent people because the message of the gospel wasn't meant to just sit on us but send us. The message didn't end with him. It didn't end with them. But it sits here right now in front of us. Whatever circumstance you find yourself in, whether, whether a time of ease or a time of difficulty, God didn't call you to be a person who cowers or shrinks back or denies the gospel because of your circumstance, but to boldly proclaim the message in the midst of the circumstance. The people who are lying about you, the people who are ridiculing you, the people who are working against you, the circumstances, the the people that you meet as a result of your circumstance, the people that you come into contact with because you're having to go places you wouldn't normally go are people who need to hear this message. They need a witness to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do it in our equip classes seeking to do this every week, but this is not just intended to be a place for us to gain knowledge for knowledge's sake. In fact, that's one of my, one of my great concerns for these classes is that we'll sit in these classes, like, and, and I'm going to pick on one. I don't intend to mean anything bad by it, but, but let's take the theology classes because we need to know deep theology. That makes us feel a little bit better about having deep theology. I want you to know the deep theology. I want you to be able to think deeply about the Word of God. Please, please study the Word and seek to understand what it means. But if you are studying it because it makes you feel comfortable and you can build your assurance on that rather than the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, then you are deceiving yourself. It is not what you know. It is who you know that saves you and assures you. These doctrinal classes, these theological lessons, how are you applying them in your life? How are they changing and transforming your perspectives? How are you thinking differently about the circumstances and situations of your life? Out out of your quick classes, this is the question I always want us to be asking. What's next for me? What's next for us? How is this knowledge maturing us? How is it mobilizing us? us? How is it encouraging, raising up new leaders that can go, raising up new leaders that can stay and raise up more leaders to go, driving us together so that we serve one another and we encourage one another and we mobilize mobilize for the sake of serving one another? How How is this knowledge that we have gained in these classes moving us in the mission of the gospel to be witnesses to each other in serving selflessly, sacrificially, And reminding one another in the midst of difficulty that God is good. That He is gracious. Not cowering back. Not running away. Not looking at someone as if they're not worth our time. But to see them as brothers and sisters united in this Christ. And how are they moving us to to, to go and speak to our neighbors and our co-workers and the cashier at the store that for all we know for all we know is someone that God would love for us to witness to well in fact I think we can know if they're in your path 
He intends you to be a witness to them. And our community groups, are we multiplying groups? Do, do our groups have room to take on people? Now you just think about your community group. Are, are you really happy with your little holy huddle that makes you feel really comfortable because you know everyone? Are, are you feeling really comfortable? You know, it's, a, it's a statement. I don't know what exactly it says, but it says something. In all the years we've been doing community groups, and, and, and this is one we've had training for for some time, when we put out a call for training, three, three people responded. And our groups are always resistant to multiplying and making room for other people to come in. Because we're really comfortable with the reservoir of the gospel, I think. Instead of being a conduit through which the gospel flows. I, I, I didn't plant this church. I didn't, this is in my, in my notes. Sorry, you're just going to have to deal with this. I didn't plant this church to be a, a mega church. I'm not looking to replace uh, Ridgecrest, uh, 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 James River, Second Baptist. We didn't plant this church to be that. But if we're not seeing some measure of growth, I wonder if it's because we're not making room for that growth to happen by being witnesses to the gospel, being conduits through which the gospel flows rather than reservoirs that just sit and soak in the gospel that feel really comfortable in the gospel because we're scared of what it might be to make room for more people to come in and enjoy the work of the gospel. If we grow, glory to God. If we don't, glory to God, we're doing what he called us to do and we're getting to enjoy that in a beautiful way. Evangelism and outreach. Uh, we're really good at doing service projects. We're really good at, at being out in front of people. It's always difficult to take that step, to move past that service project, to move past that social justice effort to be a person who speaks the gospel. This is the very thing we were called to be. If you are, are, are concerned, if you are, if you are too nervous, if, if in some way you've never done it and you're, you're scared to take that first step, then, 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 then talk to me. Talk to a brother or sister in the church. Bring them here. Let, let us interact with them. Someone will begin to tell them the gospel. Involve them in equip classes, gospel project, uh, it, it, walking through the Bible. Everything pointing to Jesus. Bring them to the sermons. We're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to sing songs about Jesus. But brothers and sisters, we can never, we can no longer allow our fear to be an excuse for not being a witness to the grace and glory of Jesus Christ. He has given us a mission. He's called us to it. He has equipped us for it. He has empowered, and now He has said, Go. So let's go.